Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time now to look at your word, and we pray by your Holy Spirit that you'd open our eyes so that we see and understand and hear what you are saying to us into our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how often does reality fall short of expectation? Um, I guess it's uh, often the case, um, not just with, um, if I can get this picture up, uh, with burgers. Um, Here we go. Do you you ever have that with burgers in McDonald's, where you think, that looks just like the best burger I've ever seen, and then you go up and you get it out of the box, and it's rather less good than you thought it was going to be. It can be the same with cake recipes. Um, you go and you think, I'm going to make that cake on the left, and then you, if you even get that far, you end up with the cake on the right. Uh, it, expect, uh, reality falls short of expectations. It can be the same with jobs, relationships, marriages even, friendships, holidays and time off, family time, church, life itself. So often reality does not live up to expectation. What do we do when that happens? For for many people, the answer is is obvious. Well, you just change your job or you ditch the relationship or you have a a trial separation or you try some new friends or you book another holiday or you get angry with the family or you quit church or you feel highly frustrated with life in general. And, And what about when we consider our relationship with God if we call ourselves Christians. Sometimes you meet people who say, well, I used to call myself a Christian, but then something terrible happened. And uh, some life-changing, deeply painful events took place, like a a divorce or a bereavement or or redundancy or some other uh, difficulty or tragedy. And I couldn't make sense of how God could allow this kind of thing to happen. And so I walked away. And we've seen over the last few weeks, Joseph had every reason to feel like that. He'd gone from being being in a pit, he'd gone to prison, uh, through no fault of his own on either occasion. Now he's stuck there, a victim of injustice, seemingly forgotten, certainly by his family and acquaintances. And he might be starting to wonder, as we saw last week if you were here, is it possible that God has forgotten me as well. But along with that, we've been seeing over the last few weeks the truth of a statement Joseph makes right at the end of his life, which is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Here it is. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We've seen the truth of this, and we're going to carry on seeing the truth of it. We've seen how God is consistently working behind the scenes to bring about his good plan, not just for Joseph, but for his people and for the whole world. And that comes to an initial climax in this chapter. We saw uh, last week, we saw chapters 39 to 41 are a bit of a trilogy, like, like something like Star Wars. Uh, Last week was Empire Strikes Back. It was kind of part two of three. Now this is kind of Return of the Jedi, when everything comes together. Part three of three. Although actually, like Star Wars, you've then got another trilogy to come in the following chapters of more action. But for now, in this extraordinary chapter, we start to see why Joseph was right to wait and to trust God, even when the circumstances he was in seemed to be 100% against him. 
and even seemed to be against what God had revealed to him in his dreams about his future. Reality did not seem to match expectations. But still, Joseph kept going. And along with that verse, chapter 50, verse 20, we've also seen very clearly so far how Joseph's life points us not always to us in our own lives, first of all. We don't always draw the line straight from Joseph to us. We draw the line first from Joseph to Jesus. And we see how his life is like a shadow of Jesus's life. And it's, it's as we understand how that shadow points us to the reality of Jesus that we really start to see then what this means for our lives today. So as as things begin to come together for Joseph, we see in this chapter a proud king humbled, a humble servant exalted, and a whole world blessed. And we're going to see throughout, as we look at each of those three things, how each of these things points us very clearly to Jesus. So here we go. First of all, a proud king humbled. Here is... Pharaoh, and now it's not just his servants troubled by dreams, but it's Pharaoh himself, as we heard. In his dream, what did he see? It's an extraordinary, strange dream, isn't it? He saw seven fat cows grazing by the fertile river Nile, and then seven thin cows standing beside them, and the seven thin cows ate the fat cows. And the same happens in this second dream with the grain. Seven healthy heads of grain, seven thin scorched heads come and swallow them up. And we hear those dreams once, and we hear how no one in the entire court could interpret them, none of the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And then the conscience of the cupbearer is pricked. Oh, Pharaoh, there was this this guy in prison, and you'll remember this from last week if you were here. Um, There was this guy in prison with me, and, and that baker that you had killed, we won't talk about him, and he interpreted our dreams, and he got them exactly right. So they get Joseph. And here he comes, I hear you can interpret dreams, says Pharaoh. Well, look at how he responds, verse 16. I, <clears throat> I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. And then we hear the dreams again, this time with, with a bit more emphasis on the ugliness of the second set of cows who remain just as ugly and lean as they were in the first place, even after they've eaten the the, the first seven fat cows, Pharaoh was keen to say. And Joseph explains, well, these dreams, cows and grain, they're the same thing. They're about the same thing. Egypt has seven prosperous years ahead and seven years of famine to follow. But the thing that stands out in Joseph's explanation of all this is one word. It is God. God will give Pharaoh the answer answer he desires, he says. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. He says, God has shown it. The matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So this isn't about the brilliance of Joseph and how great he was at interpreting these dreams. This is about the God who gives the dream and who gives the meaning. And And even more than that, who's then in control of everything that happens. Here is Pharaoh, who can throw whoever he wants into prison at the drop of a hat and have them executed on a whim, but he's totally at the mercy of the harvest and the events to come. And this is a little foretaste of what is to come for Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, a few hundred years later in the book of Exodus. 
And it's, again, it's something that the Bible in different ways points out throughout the whole of the Bible story. Kings do not make history. Kings do not make history. They are subject to history like everybody else. So think of the, uh, think of the reported conversation between Dominic Cummings and the Deputy Cabinet Secretary in March 2020 as they realised the scale of what COVID represented for the UK and it began to dawn on them. Now, if you may have heard this, some of the language used is not repeatable in this context. I think we are doomed, or words to that effect is what they said. I think this country is headed for disaster. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. That is the conversation that, that, that took place. And as people queue up to, to criticise the pandemic readiness of the government, I read uh, this last week of another type of potential disaster that could hit us at any time with just 15 minutes warning. This is extraordinary, but they, they talked about a solar superstorm which could see a supercharged electromagnetic pulse of radiation travel from the sun to the earth where it would interact with the Earth's magnetic field and wipe out our communications and mobile phone networks with all the knock-on effects that that would have. Now, this last happened in 1859. It's not that long ago. Uh, but it was, of course, before the widespread use of electricity, so the, the kind of effects of it were, were fairly limited. You see, once you start to realise there are these things out there, you know, it may not happen in our lifetime, but it might. And actually, how ready are we for things like that? Uh, the claim is not very ready at all. So it's not just governments and kings, though, is it, that like to give the illusion of being in control. And things like that remind us of really how little we are in control of anything. But actually, not just governments and kings, we all like to give that illusion of being in control when we're not. And as we think about the mismatch between expectation and reality that so often occurs for us, Maybe sometimes at the heart of that is a desire to be king, to be God, to act like God in our lives and circumstances, to act like Pharaoh, to have the kind of control over our lives that we imagine Pharaoh had, where he could just give a command and it would happen exactly as he wanted. When the reality, even for Pharaoh, as we see here, is that we are all dependent and in the end powerless creatures. And just as Joseph squared up to Pharaoh and told him how it was, think of Jesus standing before Pilate at his trial. You would have no power except it had been given to you from above, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate. And what does King Jesus then do with all the power that he rightly has as the creator of the universe? Well, he gives it up. The route to glory begins with acknowledging our lack of power, our lack of control. It, it begins with giving it up, not, not seizing it, not clinging on to it for dear life. When was the last time that we prayed, Lord, this situation feels out of control, whatever it is. I am not in control. But before I pray for help and guidance and solutions as well as I might in that kind of situation, I want to acknowledge, Lord, that you are God and I am not. And that's okay. 
That's the starting point. That is the beginning of the way back to God. The thing is, if we won't go down that route, what we so often find is that God does that for us anyway. And that's what happened here with Pharaoh, a proud king humbled. But then next in this chapter, we see, secondly, a humble servant exalted. A humble servant exalted. Humble yourself before the Lord, says both Peter in 1 Peter in the New Testament and James in his letter in the New Testament. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the way God does things. It's the way that Jesus went in death and resurrection. It's exemplified in Joseph right here. First, he becomes like the people that he's going to serve. Do you see this with Joseph? It's striking, and it's like Jesus, if you think about it. He becomes like the people that he's going to serve. So verse 14, we're told as he comes out of prison, the first thing he does is he shaves, which might not sound that odd, but it, it is a uniquely Egyptian thing to do in that culture. Everyone else, including the Israelites, grew long beards. But Egyptians like to shave both their heads and their beards. You know, very stylish, I might say. But he changed his, his clothes as well. Just think, before his brothers put him in the pit in chapter 37, they took away his coat of many colours. Before he went to prison the second time with Potiphar's wife, his cloak is taken from him by Potiphar's wife as he fled from her bedroom. And now as he emerges from the pit, it's clothing again, but this time he's putting it on, and he's putting on new Egyptian clothing. Further on, verse 42, he gets an Egyptian ring. He gets even finer robes and a gold chain. So like Jesus, he becomes like the people he's going to serve. God became a man. He humbled himself. He became like the human beings for whom he would die. Joseph becomes like the people he's going to serve. He looks like an Egyptian. Maybe he even walks like an Egyptian. Who knows? But Then after he delivers the plan to Pharaoh, he says this, here's what's going to happen. Now appoint someone to store up food during the years of plenty so that you will have plenty of food in the year, <coughs> excuse me, in the years of famine. Now, who will be the best person to deliver this extraordinary plan that uh, uh, Joseph has come up with? And Pharaoh speaks better than he knows. He wants someone with the spirit of God, he says. He wants someone with the spirit of God who can do these things. And uh, he doesn't realize that what he's saying is he needs somebody like Joseph. Joseph has that spirit, and so did Jesus. Joseph is exalted. He's put in charge of the palace. He's put in charge of the whole nation of Egypt so that people shout before him, make way for this great Joseph who's coming. Do you remember the ministry of John the Baptist? That was his job, wasn't it? To shout, make way for the Messiah. So here's Joseph behaving like that saviour figure. And Joseph gets to work delivering on his plan. And along the way, he marries Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, we're told, this is a, a similar name, but nothing to do with Potiphar from chapter 39. He wasn't a priest, but this is, so this is a different person. And he marries, and then, this is the key thing, then two children are born, right at the end of the chapter, from verse 50 onwards. The first child is Manasseh, 
which is a play on the word for forgetting. God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now, you can see what he means, can't you? That's what happened in that part of his life. But it's a funny thing to say. Because he's saying, well, my, my, my fortunes have been transformed. Of course they have. Look at his job now compared to how things were before. And yet, what is he calling his son? He's calling his son, I have forgotten all the things that happened to me before. So far from actually forgetting them, far from actually forgetting the pain and suffering that's happened before, <clears throat> in one sense, by calling his son, I am forgetting the things that happened before, he's ensuring that they will never be forgotten. Because every time he looks at his son and says, Manasseh, forgotten, he's remembering what, he, what has been forgotten. Do you see? It's a slightly funny thing. But it, it's kind of saying to us that now those sufferings that he went through will be viewed in a different way. It's a little shadow of Jesus standing with his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And what does he say? He says, look at my scars. See, at that point, Jesus has risen from the dead. His sufferings are behind him. And yet his scars now remain with him. In the book of Revelation, John talks about a lamb on the throne looking as though it had been slain. But now it's on the throne, do you see? It's, it's, the sufferings are there, but they've been transformed. Now, each of us will have scars of different kinds. Uh, scars from accidents, scars from illness and surgery. Scars that no one can see. Mental rather than physical, spiritual scars from struggling with God, like Jacob earlier in Genesis, scars that are caused by sin done to us by others, scars caused by sin that we have done. And the pattern that Joseph sets here and that Jesus fulfilled shows us <clears throat> Those scars won't ever entirely vanish, but their meaning will transform. And they will go from being the thing that causes pain in the here and now to becoming the symbols of what we've been rescued from. And symbols of what God has used to do his transforming work in us and through us and in others. So do you see, God had used Joseph's suffering to get him ready for this moment. And in the end, you know, he'd used all that time when he was thinking, why have I been put in a pit? Why am I being taken off into slavery in Egypt? Why am I being put into prison now for something I haven't done wrong? It just seems so unjust and unfair, all this suffering that he's gone through. <clears throat> but the end point is him being in the right place at the right time to be the saviour for his brothers and his family in the time of famine. That's where we get to in the following chapters. See, when expectation does not match with reality, if we humble ourselves and say, God, I'm not in control, but I know you are and I trust you, we can know there will be a day when our scars become symbols of God's kindness and goodness his work of rescuing us and transforming us through those 
painful experiences. Sometimes it will be clear how that's happened. So that, for example, you know, maybe our own grief that we have experienced through what we've gone through has enabled us later to minister to others going through those experiences. Sometimes we may not be able to be so clear. Sometimes it will be that, that, that we know that, that God has given us, he sustained us, he, he's given us the hope and encouragement, maybe a depth to our faith and maturity that we didn't have before, but sometimes we may just still struggle to understand it. But we can know that God is using it and transforming us through our suffering so that there will be a day when we are able to look back, maybe not till we are in eternity but we will be able to look back and see how that has transformed us and see how those things which were painful have been used to make us more like Jesus and able to serve him and serve others, even if we can't see exactly how at the time. So we've seen a, humble, uh, a proud king humbled, we've seen a humble servant exalted, and then thirdly, we see a whole world blessed this is where the <clears throat> the chapter ends with huge quantities of grain verse 49 like the sand of the sea so much that he has to to stop keeping records does that reference to the sand of the sea does that remind you of anything at all well it, it was how god describes to abraham and later jacob the number of their descendants that was going to come at a, point, uh, at a point in their lives that looked, when that looked completely ridiculous. The idea of them having loads of descendants seemed crazy talk. And he said, sand of the seashore is what it's going to look like. Now, we're not there quite with the descendants yet, and we, but we'll get there by the beginning of Exodus. And they'll begin to be spoken of like that. But this is a reminder of those promises that God made to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, his father Jacob. And in particular, he made that promise. In, the con in, in that context, he said, <clears throat> all that stuff about your descendants is in order that the whole world can be blessed. It's not just about you and your family having a nice life, he says to Abraham. It's about the whole world being blessed through you. And so that is what is happening now. Do you see? It is happening right here in chapter 41 through Joseph's wisdom, so that not just the whole of Egypt is fed, but verse 57, so that all the world comes to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And then look at the, 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 the name of the second son after Manasseh, verse 52, Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitful. He says, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. How fitting a name. Think then of Jesus. What does he say in the land of his suffering? Well, in the land of his suffering, Jesus issues an invitation to the whole world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so we are, you know, the whole world then was invited to go to Joseph for food. We are invited to come to the exalted servant who suffered, not merely for physical food, but for eternal life, 
that will address our deepest hunger and thirst and desires and needs. And to receive it for free. They had to pay for it, didn't they? They had to go and buy it from, from Joseph still. We get to receive the bread of life for free, without cost, without money, because the cost has been paid by the death of Jesus at the cross. And so as we follow this saviour today then, as we come to him for food, what then should we expect of our lives? Well, we should expect, as we've seen, first to be humbled. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Humility, as as C.S. Lewis put it, is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. It's thinking not, what can I get out of this situation for myself, but how can I serve God in this situation? It's saying to God, I'm not in control, but you're in control, and that's okay. Expect to be humbled. Expect then to bear scars that tell of God's work in us and through us. That's what we've seen, isn't it? Expect to bear scars that tell of God's work in us and through us. COVID has been and continues to be tough, incredibly tough, unbelievably so. And for most of us, that's without going near a hospital, uh, as a patient at least, or, 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 a, you know, or, or near a ventilator. And it still remains really, really hard. And it may remain like that for who knows how long. This is nothing less, though, than the way of the cross. This is just the normal Christian life. If you're trusting in Jesus and you find life is difficult for whatever reason, we need to know that's normal. That's just what what it's like following Jesus. And prosperity and victory and comfort are the exception and not the norm, this side of Jesus' return. But we can know that those scars that are formed through all those experiences that we go through, those scars and memories will be used by God to make us more like Jesus, to be equipped to serve him better. So expect to bear scars. And then expect to bless the world, in the land of, even in the land of trouble. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering, says Joseph. Even in the midst of suffering, how might God use us to bless others, even in the land of our troubles, as it were, to speak about him with our friends and neighbours, to offer words of hope and encouragement to others in the midst of pandemic blues, to offer deeds of love and kindness. You know, not sometime in the future when, when everything's okay again, if that ever comes, but here and now, in the place that God has put us right here, right now, with all the joys and sorrows and frustrations and pains. Expect to bless the world, even in the land of trouble. When reality does not match expectations, it's time for our expectations to be shaped and to be reshaped and changed, isn't it? By the God who sent and used Joseph and the God who sent and used Jesus in order to make us, his people, more like him and in order to bless the world.